It is the doomsday prepper's wettest dream that the most powerful among us are secretly conspiring to thin the herd, slaughter their own people, and replace them with a new world order. Mythical floods are found in some of our most ancient surviving stories. In the Mesopotamian myths, a flood is the god's solution to the problem of overpopulation. In the Christian Bible, as in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the flood is used differently, as a way of punishing humankind for its wickedness and starting afresh. But does Ovid, and do his translators, present Jove as liquidating his own creation? And do they present this as genocide, or more as a drastic form of editing? What connections does the flood story in the Metamorphoses have to the other myths floating around in antiquity? And what is left on the horizon once the waters have settled? Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about the flood story found in book one of Ovid's Metamorphoses. If you haven't heard my previous episodes on the Metamorphoses, I've been paddling through the book story by story. Last time we saw our first human metamorphosis in the tale of the giants and Lycaon, where we found that murderous king Lycaon who provoked the wrath of Jove and was transformed into a wolf. Picking up where we left off today, I am looking at a 98-line section in which we find Jove enacting his plan to punish humanity. For the house of Lycaon was only the start, only a single ruin, he warned. Once again, I, I feel obliged to declare I have no Latin and will be relying instead on English translations of the poem. I will be comparing several of these and intend this series to be as much about Ovid's translators as the man himself. And like last time, I'll be mainly following John Dryden's translation of this story, his 98 English lines covering the flood, as they appeared in Garth's Metamorphoses of 1717. I'll read through this version once in full, and then as we go through and analyse what's happening, I'll reference other translations and see how certain moments are rendered differently over the ages. Lastly, before we begin, I'd just like to say if you enjoy my work and would like to support the podcast, you can do so at a dizzying variety of temples. You can leave a positive review on your chosen podcast platform, subscribe if you're watching on YouTube, or even buy me a coffee using the coffee link in the episode description box below. There is no material upside to this, um, but when the podcast wars of the mid-2020s kick off and devastate the Scottish capital you will be glad that you made a friend of Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. If, however, you expect some kind of return for your money, you can exchange it for merchandise featuring our author artwork, all produced by my sister, Elle, toiling down there in the podcast minds as I shriek down, Beatrix Potter next! If you're listening to the uh, audio, there's an illustration of the Ovid design on your podcast player. If you're watching on screen, there's a few different versions hopefully popping up. We print these on uh, t-shirts, mugs, looking at postcards and that kind of thing in the near future. Links to all of that is in the episode description box. Thank you for indulging the hustle. Final thing, I hope my voice is okay today. I am currently isolating with COVID, but I am trying to channel my newfound leper status into this story of plagued mankind. Um, So here we go. As I said, we left Jove announcing to his fellow gods that the penalty of Lycaon was only the start. Mankind's a monster, he said. 
and the ungodly times confederate into guilt are sworn to crimes. All are alike involved in ill, and all must by the same relentless fury fall. Now here is how Dryden continues with the story of the Flood. Thus ended he, the greater gods assent, by clamours urging his severe intent, the less fill up the cry for punishment. Yet still with pity they remember man, and mourn as much as heavenly spirits can. They ask when those were lost of human birth, what he would do with all this waste of earth. If his dispeopled world he would resign to beasts, a mute and more ignoble line. Neglected altars must no longer smoke if none were left to worship and invoke. To whom the father of the gods replied, lay that unnecessary fear aside. Mine be the care new people to provide. I will from wondrous principles ordain a race unlike the first and try my skill again. Already had he tossed the flaming brand and rolled the thunder in his spacious hand, preparing to discharge on seas and land, but stopped for fear. Thus violently driven, the sparks should catch his axle tree of heaven. Remembering in the fates a time when fire should to the battlements of heaven aspire, and all his blazing worlds above should burn, and all the inferior globe to cinders turn. His dire artillery thus dismissed, he bent his thoughts to some securer punishment, concludes to pour a watery deluge down, and what he durst not burn resolves to drown. The northern breath that freezes flood he binds with all the race of cloud-dispelling winds, the south he loosed, who night and horror brings, and fogs are shaken from his flaggy wings. From his divided beard two streams he pours, his head and roomy eyes distilled in showers. With rain his robe and heavy mantle flow, and lazy mists are lowering on his brow. Still as he swept along, with his clenched fist he squeezed the clouds, the imprisoned clouds resist. The skies from pole to pole with peals resound, and showers enlarged come pouring on the ground. Then clad in colours of a various dye, Junonian iris breeds a new supply to feed the clouds. Impetuous rain descends, the bearded corn beneath the burden bends, defrauded clowns deplore their perished grain, and the long labours of the year are vain. Nor from his patrimonial heaven alone is Jove content to pour his vengeance down. Aid from his brother of the seas he craves to help him with auxiliary waves. The watery tyrant calls his brooks and floods who rowl from mossy caves their moist abodes. And with perpetual urns his palace fill, to whom in brief he thus imparts his will. Small exhortation needs your powers employ, and this bad world so Jove requires destroy. Let loose the reins to all your watery store, bear down the dams and open every door. The floods by nature enemies to land, and proudly swelling with their new command, remove the living stones that stopped their way, and gushing from their source, augment the sea. Then, with his mace, their monarch struck the ground, with inward trembling earth received the wound. 
and rising streams a ready passage found. The expanded waters gather on the plain, they float the fields and overtop the grain. Then rushing onwards with a sweepy sway, bear flocks and folds and labouring hinds away. Nor safe their dwellings were, for sapped by floods their houses fell upon their household gods. The solid piles, too strongly built to fall, high o'er their heads behold a watery wall. Now seas and earth were in confusion lost, a world of waters and without a coast. One climbs a cliff, one in his boat is born, and ploughs above where late he sowed his corn. Others o'er chimney tops and turrets row, and drop their anchors on the meads below. Or downward driven they bruise the tender vine, or tossed aloft are knocked against a pine. And where of late the kids had cropped the grass, the monsters of the deep now take their place, insulting nereids on the city ride, and wandering dolphins o'er the palace glide. On leaves and masts of mighty oaks they browse, and their broad fins entangle in the boughs. The frighted wolf now swims amongst the sheep, the yellow lion wanders in the deep, his rapid force no longer helps the boar, the stag swims faster than he ran before. The fowls, long beating on their wings in vain, despair of land and drop into the main. Now hills and vales no more distinction know, and levelled nature lies oppressed below. The most of mortals perish in the flood, the small remainder dies for want of food. We talked last time of how Ovid aligned Jove's Council of Gods with a Roman council by explicitly describing the Thunderer's abode as Heaven's Palatine, where the Roman Emperor Augustus had his palace. Following Ovid's lead, in his 1632 translation, Englishman George Sandys compares Jove's mansions to Whitehall. Dryden, you might remember, misses the political connotations by emphasising the palace's beauty instead, calling it the Louvre of the Sky. Jove is certainly playing to the gallery, but in order to win favour, it is important to notice that while he is father of the gods, he appears to need his children's support in these plans for exterminating humanity. This is quite unlike the build-up to the Christian flood story, in which God informs Noah of what is going to happen. There is no hint whatsoever of there being approval needed. Jove, on the other hand, receives, as Dryden has it, the greater god's assent, and I don't know about you, but when the less fill up the cry for punishment, might we hear a little reluctancy? Is it a cry that needs filling up? Was there an embarrassing pause first? Are there some gods in the back that need convincing? Certainly there is no question of the other gods feeling conflicted about Jove's plan. They will mourn man, as Dryden says, albeit as much as heavenly spirits can. Ted Hughes, in his short translation, Tales from Ovid, invokes the henchmen of 20th century genocidal maniacs, too stunned to speak as hideous plans are laid down. All were quietly appalled, he writes, to imagine mankind annihilated. What would heaven do with a globe full of empty temples, altars attended only by spiders? And the gods may also be feeling threatened themselves. In Charles Martin's version, they ask... Who would bring incense to their altars? After all, what are gods without worshippers? 
Similarly, in Dryden, the gods call the dispeopled world a waste of earth. What will the world be without people in it? It's worth remembering in the creation story, it wasn't made explicit who made the world. God, or some artist as resourceful, began to sort it out, writes Hughes. Ovid never names the creator, indicating perhaps some older, superior god to Jove. This is another aspect of the story that differs Jove's flood from that of the Christian god. The latter is washing away his own handiwork, Jove is perhaps destroying another god's creation. His promise to create a race unlike the first, a race of marvellous birth, might indicate he is correcting his own mistake. I find that Hughes' rendering of the lines, he would produce a new humanity, different from the first model and far more prudently fashioned, as Jove attempting to better the prototype of an earlier god. Dryden, on the other hand, definitively makes Jove the creator, by having him say, I will from wondrous principles ordain a race unlike the first and try my skill again. I like how vague wondrous principles sounds here, like a politician's false and fuzzy promise. So Jove sets about destroying mankind, but doesn't straight away opt for using water. According to Dryden, already he had tossed the flaming brand and rolled the thunder in his spacious hand. In Hughes, as Jove considers the deletion of these living generations, he ponders mass electrocution by lightning. What stops Jove from incinerating the world with his thunder is the thought that such destruction might rebound on his palace, that the sparks, as Dryden has it, should catch his axle tree of heaven. Jove's wrath, in other words, could be powerful enough to destroy not only the world, but the gods in heaven as well. Earlier, Jove had advocated for the destruction of the human race on the basis that it would be safer for the demigods, the nymphs and fauns that lived down there on Earth without mankind in the picture. But if his dire artillery is powerful enough to potentially destroy heaven, surely it would have annihilated them first. Another example of Jove's flimsy promises. And his gods also seem to have forgotten their brethren down below when they consider the waste of Earth and ask if his dispeopled world he would resign to beasts a mute and more ignoble line. I mean, what happened to the demigods? Immediately you're resigning the world to beasts, a line, in other words, like that of Lycaon, now roaming the world like a wolf. We talked last time about what an enigmatic and dubious punishment turning a man with wolfish appetites into a wolf was. And from the first lines of today's story, we see it was a superfluous transformation anyway, as Jove intends to wipe out mankind, either meaning this will destroy Lycaon, or in the absurd possibility raised by the gods, destroy man and leave the likes of Lycaon to inherit the earth. Alan H.F. Griffin points out that Jove's behaviour here is still more evidence that he is not that different from Lycaon. Griffin writes, In Ovid's creation epic, the punishment for human sin takes the form of fire as well as flood. The two doomsdays of fire and flood are represented in the epic. He's referring here to the story we're talking about and the story of Phaeton, which closes the book. But whereas the fire is limited and local, the flood is universal. Fire and water are the elements which Jupiter, Jove, contemplates using to destroy the world and mankind. Lycaon also used fire and water to present the meal of human flesh for Jupiter. His cooking, which of course involved the destruction of human life, parodies the destruction of human life by fire and water when Jupiter punishes mankind for its evil ways. 
What stops Joe from releasing his thunderbolts is a memory of the fates, predicting a time when the world and heaven both would burn to cinders. In Alan Mandelbaum's translation, he brought to mind that in the Book of Fates this was inscribed. A time would come when sea and land would burn, a conflagration that would overturn the palace of the sky. Here, Ovid is incorporating a belief associated with Stoic philosophy, that of ekpyrosis, the periodic destruction of the universe in flames. For the first time, we see the immortal Jove consider his limitations. Ted Hughes says, God as he was, he knew that Earth's and Heaven's lease for survival is nothing more than a lease, that both must fall together, the globe and its brightness combined like a tear or a single bead of sweat, into the bottomless fires of the first last forge. Not wanting to risk that, Jove instead chooses some securer punishment. Clearly, Jove doesn't land on a flood for any supposedly cleansing, purifying qualities, but because it won't endanger heaven. What he durst not burn, he resolves to drown. This is a gift to the likes of Hughes, who has been emphasising resonances to 20th century genocide throughout this section. Jove chooses a flood because it is efficient, clean, and carries no collateral risk. Rain, downpour, deluge, flood, these could drown the human race and be harmless, he writes. Robert Graves said that the myth of an angry god who decides to punish man's wickedness with a deluge seems to be a late Greek borrowing from the Phoenicians or the Jews. The Mesopotamian flood story is found in the Atrahasis, an epic found on clay tablets dated from around 1700 BC. According to Stephanie Daly, at a time when there was no conception of how geological change took place, nor of how vast was the time scale of evolution, an enormous flood which man by chance survived would be the only way to account for the presence of marine fossils, and may have been thought up by more than one inquiring mind. Historical floods may have encouraged this impression. The Minoan volcanic eruption of the 17th century BC blew a hole in the island of Thera, causing devastating earthquakes and tsunamis. However, these are thought to have only seriously affected other small islands in the Aegean Sea and Crete, not causing significant damage to mainland Greece. Jove begins his flood not with an eruption, but by binding up all the winds except the south. Notus, as he is called, flies out across the world, the fogs shaken from his flaggy wings, as from his divided beard two streams pour. His head and roomy eyes distill in showers. Dryden emits a reference to the cave of Aeolus, in which he keeps the other winds. You might remember in the creation story, the unnamed creator organised the winds to give the world balance. By locking all but one of them up, Jove is returning the world to a state of chaos. And interestingly, this is reflected in the Metamorphoses' internal sense of time. Jane L. Lightfoot has written, The poem is very broadly chronological, but the sense of temporal progression is really only strongly marked at the beginning and end. After the opening creation and flood sequence, we soon lose much sense of orderly forward momentum, and are free to impose patterns limited only by the ingenuity of the critic. Conversely, in the most famous Mesopotamian myth, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood actually marks a time in history after which it was no longer possible for a mortal to achieve immortality. Before the flood, mankind existed timelessly, not yet allowed a lifespan, which led to the world becoming overcrowded. This is something that the gods addressed with a purification by washing. So in Ovid's story, a sense of time is lost by the flood, 
and in the Mesopotamian myths, time is clarified by it. Ted Hughes pictures Jove dragging whole oceans up like a peacock shawl. He receives assistance from his brother, and having just discussed sea gods on my episode on Sylvia Plath's Full Fathom 5, it's good to see here the watery tyrant Neptune calling his brooks and floods who rowl from mossy caves. Jove is further helped by Junonian Iris, goddess of the rainbow, who breeds a new supply to fill the clouds. Alison Keith comments that classical poets repeatedly feminise and sexualise the landscapes in which they set male actions. In the first book of the Metamorphoses, for example, the floodwaters Jupiter sends to destroy the human race fertilise the earth, which regenerates the animal kingdom. At the expense of the poor farmer whose crops are destroyed in one of the story's tragic vignettes. Ted Hughes' rendering of this is my favourite, the farmer's year of labour dissolved as he wept. If I was more of a Latinist, I might understand why Dryden translates the line as defrauded clowns deplore their perished grain, which seems more than a little harsh on farmers, especially farmers in such trying circumstances. And this little scene reminds me of another blighted ploughman, the one described by Titania in A Midsummer Night's Dream, who has lost his sweat as the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and crows are fatted with the murrian flock. Another example, perhaps, of Shakespeare borrowing from Ovid's Metamorphoses. The climax of the story is a series of such portraits that come after the deluge, the world now a sea without a shore. Ovid revels in the topsy-turviness of this new world. We have a survivor bobbing in a boat above where he once sowed corn. Dryden imagines anchors dropped into meadows, and monsters of the deep taking the place of goats, dolphins gliding in wonderment over palaces. Hughes has dolphins too, hunting their preys into oak trees, as the wild boar, the poor swimmer, soon goes under. Even his faithful heavy defenders, the thunderbolt and lightning flash of his tusks, have joined the weight against him. We also see the frighted wolf swimming among the sheep, an inclusion that prompted Seneca the Younger to chastise Ovid for schoolboy silliness. But the moment reinforces the conclusion that personal metamorphosis wasn't the final punishment for Lycaon. He had to be further subsumed in the universal metamorphosis of the flood, along with the exhausted birds who, finding no perch, drop into the sea, the mortals who perish in the flood, and those who find safety only to become starvation's prey. Drowned mankind, writes Hughes in summary, imploring limbs outspread, floats like a plague of dead frogs. This brings us to the end of Ovid's flood story, and next time we will discuss the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha, the two human survivors whose skiff comes aground on Mount Parnassus, rather like Noah's Ark landing on Mount Ararat. Joseph D. Reed has written that Ovid's myth of the flood, by which the ruling god wipes out sinful humankind, except for a pair of innocent and worshipful people, possibly engages with the account in the biblical book of Genesis, which Ovid could have known through the Greek translation, the Septuagint. There was a long-standing Jewish community in Rome, and Ovid shows himself aware of Eastern Mediterranean religion, including Judaism, in, for example, the art of love. Now, there are numerous interesting connections between the Genesis Flood and Ovid's. 
Alan H.F. Griffin has written a catalogue of them, noting the similar way in which both floods play out. The first thing that happens is a wind sent by God across the earth. The waters above and below both burst their barriers. Chaos returns and the flood covers the world. The most impressive coincidence is Ovid's use of the verb Ararat, he used to plough, given that Noah's Ark happens to land on a mountain called Ararat. To give us a sense of just how impressive a coincidence this is, TTB Rider has written, The form Ararat, an abbreviated form of a part of a comparatively rare tense, is not likely to have been in common use in Latin literature. Indeed, I have not been able to find another instance. There is not one in all the other 160 examples of the verb listed in the Thesaurus Linguae Latinae, and an inspection of available concordances confirms that Ararat does not occur elsewhere in Ovid, or at all in Caesar, Catullus, Cicero, Horace, Juvenal, Lucan, Lucretius, Plautus, Propertius, Tacitus, Terence, Valerius, or Virgil, although these authors provide in all 72 other uses of the verb. There can, I think, be only two possible alternative explanations, Ryder concludes, either that Ovid was aware of the play on words, or that the poet was in some way divinely inspired to include, unwittingly, a reference to the sacred version of his story. So there you have it. There are the intriguing connections between the Genesis flood and the flood found in Ovid's Metamorphoses. That brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed. I hope my voice hasn't been too uh, COVID-y. Um, I'll be back soon with the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha, but there will definitely be other episodes on other authors uh, between now and then. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, happy reading. <laughs>